Thank you and good morning. Palm Sunday is a very special time for obvious reasons now as it sets our minds in motion towards the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in that great story that we're going to be examining through the course of these days. The passage I want to turn to this morning, Psalm 118, was God's way musically of preparing his people for what was about to take place. Penned about a thousand years prior to the time in which Jesus Christ made his move towards Jerusalem, what you and I find here is that this composition, most likely penned by King David, has various verses that tie directly to what is described in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is both poetic as well as prophetic. Now, as you're turning there, what we need to understand is that this musical composition was developed for a choir, and it was to be sung antiphonally. And by that we mean is that it's like a musical, and people are going to be singing back and forth to one to another. In verse 1, down through verse 19, in order to understand the musical drama that's occurring here, what you find is that it's set in such a way that both the Levites and the priests are making their way through the streets of Jerusalem to that strategic point where, in verse 19, climactically, there is this shout desiring for the gates to be opened up that they might enter in. There is a powerful, powerful movement throughout the gospel accounts on this whole idea of God opening providing ways, access to God. We're going to note this poetically and yet prophetically. In verse 19, climactically, they're standing now, the Levites and the priests, at the gates of Jerusalem. They are making this call, this request, prayerfully for the gates to be opened. As this has been completed, there is now an antiphonal response by the ministry personnel from inside the gates. And in verse 20, down through verse 27 then, the ministry personnel representing God's will respond in such a way to prep their hearts for the access, the opening that God is providing his sinful people who have put their faith and trust in Messiah. As soon as they are done, the ministry personnel of responding in verse 20 through 27 Then once again, those outside the gates, the Levites, as well as the priests, then respond in such a way of they are thankful for what is about to occur. And then powerfully and in unison, both outside as well as within the gates, everybody now jointly responds, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His hesed, his steadfast love, endures forever, and this is known as an inclusio in the Hebrew because what we find that the concluding verse is providing us is the very same information that the opening verse provided us, that God's steadfast love, his hesed, spoken of over 200 times in your Old Testament, has direct bearing upon your life. And so all this was God's musical way of prepping people 1,000 years in advance during both the period, of course, of the Feast of the Tabernacles, but especially that of Passover, that this enactment would occur symbolically 
to get them to think seriously about Messiah who is to come. You're going to find prophetic fulfillment in these verses and see if you can spot how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John utilize this psalm to describe Palm Sunday. In verse 19, we'll pick up with these words. Here now the Levites and the priests are standing at the gates. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Now comes the antiphonal response from inside the gates. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, or literally in the Hebrew, Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see the prophecy there? Again, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now the Levites and the priests at this point have heard verses 20 through 27 sung back to them after their initial request to open the gates. They respond now, you are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Now both outside as well as inside the gates in one accord, this powerful union of spirit expresses itself musically. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. And now you have linked the first and the last verse. You've come full circle, and you see how this psalm begins to unfold as we look to our Lord in prayer. It is utterly astounding to us that you would take one like David in a thousand years in advance using his musical skills poetically and yet at the same time prophetically communicate these truths in such detail that we would see them unfold in the very events of Jesus making his way into Jerusalem as he heads to that cross to die for our sins. You mastermind the whole process. And from eternity past to eternity future, the eternal governs the temporal. 
You have no contingency plans. Just a singular plan that you, the all-powerful, all-wise, all-good one, enacts. There needs to be now almost this swelling of awe, a spirit of wonder in our worship of you at this moment, that you are stringing a thousand years together and predicting and simultaneously fulfilling as if it's past tense. The verse is found in this psalm. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here again, Father, to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. My mind went back to a time decades ago, and as I was nearing my gate, I listened in as a woman was talking to her son, and she said, here is our ticket. We're going to wait here at the gate, and when the gate opens up, you hand them our ticket, and we'll go and get on board. Grandpa purchased this ticket for us. And he'll be waiting for us when we get there. And my jaw dropped as I listened to that conversation. People standing at a gate. A gift is given to them, a ticket for access that they themselves did not purchase. A destination with somebody awaiting them on the other side. The one who had paid the price. And all of this was unfolding at the gate. There is something powerful unfolding now at this gate. Though a thousand years prior, as David pens these thoughts, you are going to find poetically yet prophetically a richness that's described here that should prep your heart and my heart for all that takes place that we will honor God for over the course of these days to come leading toward Easter. Now there are three significant considerations that I want to draw for us to help us better understand the value and the importance of Palm Sunday. And the first is found in verse 19, and we're going to phrase it like this, that on this Palm Sunday, I want you to join with me now and consider the access that God has provided. Jerusalem is a walled city. God really does not need to provide any gate whatsoever. The very fact that there is even one gate to enter makes a statement. There are three significant requests that flow out of verse 19 alone. The first comes from the outside, calling to those on the inside. 
Open to me the gates of righteousness. Camp on that for a moment. Notice that we've got the religious leaders, the Levites and the priests, who at the Feast of Tabernacles are now symbolically teaching, equipping the Israelite people with regard to what Palm Sunday is all about. They do not have the key to the gates. They do not have the right to open the gates. They are sinners like you and like I. What they desperately need to do from the outside is to call to the one on the inside to open the gates. It's very personal. Open to me the gates. Furthermore, notice that the gates are described this way. They are the gates of righteousness. Now, if they had been both the gates of righteousness as well as unrighteousness, then basically God would be communicating a universalism. But God is not. Only the righteous gates are being described in these terms. There is a righteous access to God. Now, the Israelite would know his Older Testament, as should you and as should I. And their forefather, Abram, was standing outdoors as he was communicating and being communicated to by God. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, God brought him outside, said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And then powerfully and poignantly, he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The word offspring in Genesis 15, verse 5, is a singular and plural. It's a collective. Like I would say if we were standing out in a pasture, look at the sheep, and you wonder, am I talking about the whole flock or just one? God chooses his words wisely. Because the singular or the plural is the ultimate descendant of Abram and David, Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate singular of the plural. Thus, what does God do in verse 6 of Genesis 15? He informs you and he informs me that Abram believed the Lord and he, speaking of God, counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, on the basis of faith and faith alone, you and I are declared righteous. We are not made righteous. We were not born righteous. But that great, great saving work of God is such that on the basis of the ultimate seed, Jesus, Just as Abram was saved by putting faith and trust in the ultimate seed to come, Messiah, so you and I are declared righteous on the basis of that ultimate seed, Jesus Christ. So what we find here now is a tremendous teaching about the importance and the significance of being declared righteous. And only the declared righteous can enter through the gates of righteousness, The unrighteous cannot enter through the righteous gates. 
God is exclusionary. This is a very exclusive truth of salvation being enacted poetically and yet prophetically a thousand years prior so that each and every year by which the Levites, the priests, and company would be able to make their way toward Jerusalem, they would symbolically be illustrating the significance of the avenue of the gate of righteousness and the access that God provides. That one must be declared righteous on the basis of faith in Christ's finished work. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? But then a second request flows out of this 19. After calling out, open the gates of righteousness, the next request is that I might enter, that I may enter through them. Notice the emphasis upon the word through. What God is doing via the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me is that now the Levites and the priests, a thousand years before and upcoming to that moment, are symbolically illustrating the importance of access. And on the basis of faith, of walking through the gates of righteousness for them, they are making a visual statement of the need for entrance. That in essence, you've got your ticket paid, not by you, but by someone else, Messiah. Here's the gate. And there's someone awaiting on the other side. But if that's not enough, after you have underlined the word through, there's to be this responsiveness in your heart of worship. And give thanks to the Lord. If this were on the basis of our works rather than Christ's work, we would be thankful for what we achieved. But by giving thanks to the Lord, what we are saying is that as the call was made on the inside, to the inside of the gatekeepers, the ultimate gatekeeper, God himself, Open to me the gates of righteousness on the basis of faith. We make that call. The second request that I might enter through them, not around them. And thirdly, I give thanks to the Lord. There ought to be a weight of thankfulness on our hearts this week for all that these strategic days signify and symbolize for you and for me. John Bunyan again. In his Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, who's on his pilgrimage, arrives at what the chapter calls the gate. You've got to read this to yourself and then read it to family members. Read it for yourself first. Get a copy of Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan writes, So in the process of time, Christian got up to the gate Now over the gate there was written, Knock and it shall be opened unto you. And he knocked. Old English now. Therefore more than once or twice saying, May I now enter here, will he be within? Open to sorry me, though I have been. An undeserving rebel, then shall I, 
not fail to sing his lasting praise on high. You sense the, the thankfulness while at the gate? Now there's this one, his name is Goodwill, and he's now the one who stands at the gate. And Christian is asked this question by Goodwill, who's there? Why have you come? And Christian responds, here is a poor burdened sinner. I come from the city of destruction, but I am going to Mount Zion. Therefore, that I may be delivered from the wrath to come. I would therefore, sir, since I am informed that by this gate is the way that the... Know if you are willing to let me in, and Goodwill responds. I am willing with all my heart, said he. And with that, he opened the gate. Now Bunyan would provide a second verse to the poem that he had written by emphasizing the necessity of faith when it comes to entering into God's presence. He that will enter in must first without stand knocking at the gate, nor need he doubt. That is a knocker, but to enter in, for God can love him and forgive his sin. See, the gate, as you and I know, is of double usage. It's to open as well as to shut, to let in or to keep out. And ultimately, Jesus himself would say, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. And now you ask on why. And David, penning these thoughts, would answer, It's because these are the gates of righteousness, not the gates of unrighteousness. Therefore, one has to be declared righteous to go through righteous gates. Those are your credentials. And the basis of this is putting faith and trust in Messiah, Christ Jesus. You now, in verse 19 alone, have drawn off three significant requests that the Levites and priests have posed as they are waiting symbolically to enter in via that gate. As the crowd is processing, these are gates of righteousness, not both righteousness and unrighteousness. This is powerful teaching. It's poetic, yet it's prophetic. This is access. And Bunyan seizes it when he talks about Christian arriving at the gate. Now, in verse 20, down through verse 27, you and I find that at this point, it's now in antiphonal form, the ministry personnel from inside the gates that would respond to those standing outside the gates. Because those from without have, in essence, made a statement of faith with their threefold request. And now they are awaiting a response from within. 
And here now, we find in verse 20 through 27, a second consideration. But secondly, on this Palm Sunday, I want you now to consider with me the salvation that God has secured. Now, link verse 20 back to verse 19. In verse 19, these were known as the gates of righteousness. But for clarification, now in verse 20, he goes singular on us and says this is the gate of the Lord. Which means then, if you are to fully understand righteousness, you are to understand the Lord. Because the Lord is righteous. Now Paul grasped the significance of this as well. Because you might remember that when the Apostle Paul was penning the book of Romans, you got to chapter 3, verse 10, and all of a sudden you felt as though your heart was about to leap out of you. Because it's written, none is righteous. Now you're looking for the exception clause, and you're about to raise your hand, but he knows your name, and he says, John, Dick, Harry, Sue. No, not one. Now, here we've got the gates of righteousness, and we want to enter through the gates of righteousness, but in order to enter through the gates of righteousness, one needs righteousness. And here Paul had said, There is none righteous. Now, I've got a dilemma on my hands. But then I remember Abram was declared righteous on the basis of faith. That's historical. What about making it personal? But then in that great section on the whole matter of justification, of declared righteousness, in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul would go on to say, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus as my ticket has been purchased. As the gate has been identified, and thoroughly as I remember that there is someone awaiting me on the other side of this journey. Next time you fly, you've got a story to tell to your family members when you find yourself awaiting the gate to be opened. Look for ways to be able to tell the story of redemption. This is the gate, verse 20, of the Lord, the righteous, the declared righteous, for we are not born righteous. The righteous shall enter how? Through it. Man, even if you are sitting watching at some point the Wizard of Oz, you've got something to say. Because you reach that point, you see, where the guardian of the Emerald City Gates shouts out, who rang that bell? 
and Dorothy and Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion and the Tim Woodsman in unison said, we did. Where is this coming from? But you hear this unfolding outside the gate, inside the gate dialogue? You better hit the pause button right now if you're watching this with your children, grandchildren, friends, whoever. Because all the great stories of history find their linkage to the ultimate great story for all of eternity. We did. Can't you read, he asked. Read what? The notice. What notice? It's on the door. As plain as the nose on my face. And then he does this tisk-tisk expression. He goes inside for a moment, comes back out, hangs him. They look at it. Bell out of order, please knock. Dorothy knocks. The guardian of the gate stands there and says, well, now that's more like it. State your business. And Dorothy with her friends together again, unison, we want to see the wizard outside the gate speaking to one inside the gate. And the guardian of the gate gasps and says, the wizard, but nobody can see the great eyes. Nobody's ever seen the great eyes. I've never seen him. Oh, have you got a story to tell here? When you take the great stories of humanity and weave them together and link them to the story of eternity, because you've got an outside-inside dilemma on your hands, and the question is, how do you gain access? Take people to that cross, you know. And this is what happens in the Bible. Because in verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous, the declared righteous, shall enter not around it, through it. What ought to be your your heartfelt feelings about all this? Verse 21. I thank you. Thank you that you have answered me. You ever felt as though you've gone unanswered? Just forever standing outside the gate. And have become my salvation. Salvation personal for you or simply abstract? It's grace, you know. Salvation. Larry Christensen in The Renewed Mind illustrates it this way. A young man named Sinner once received from his father a beautiful, bright red convertible. He named it Salvation. Sparkling, new, clean, modern, powerful. He writes, it delighted the young man so much, especially because it was a gift. He couldn't have afforded it, so delighted the boy even changed his name from Sinner to Save. And he polished his car every week, took pictures of it, sent it to friends, looked it over, front, back, under, top, bottom, inside, out. Never, never tired of telling others about the gift. My father gave it to me. It's free. Some day later, Save was seen out on the highway pushing salvation. 
An individual named Helper walked up. This sounds like Bunyan all over again. Introduced himself and asked if he could assist. Oh, no, thanks. Just out enjoying my new car as he wiped the sweat off his face. Just had a little trouble because my bumper kept cutting my hands, especially on these hills. But then a nice man helped me. He showed me how to mount little rubber cushions right here underneath the bumper. And now I can push this thing for hours without a blister. Also, I've been trying something new lately. They use it over in England. You put your back against the car, lift, and it works like a charm, especially on muddy roads. And Helper asked, have you pushed the car very far? Well, about 200 miles altogether. It's been hard, but since it was a gift from my father, that's the least I can do in return to thank him. Helper opened the door on the right side and said, get in. After hesitation, he, he decided it was worth a try. He slid in on the passenger side, rested for the first time since he had been given the car. Helper walked around, opened the door, slid behind the wheel, started the car. What's all that noise, he said. Moments later, they were moving down the highway quietly at 50, 60 miles an hour, and he was taken aback. And then it all came together. And it was exciting. He knew he needed the salvation car to be admitted through the gate at the end of the highway. But somehow, he had felt all along that getting there was his responsibility. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. It's a work of God. It's not something we have achieved. But now I want you to begin to process these openings. The gates of Jerusalem open. When Jesus Christ dies on that cross, the veil is rent in two, top to bottom. The temple is open. Three days later, there are people who arrive on the scene. The tomb is open. Are you linking now this idea of access to this idea of salvation and processing the evidence of the symbolic statements that one enters into the righteous presence of God, having been declared righteous due to the finished work of Christ, and this is all of God, gates swinging open, a veil now flapping in the breeze because the Holy of Holies has been opened. The tomb is empty. The evidence is there. The Savior is risen. The information is such one has an opening to see that all of this is of God and not of us. And then because Israel is just packed with stone 
And that temple is to be constructed stone by stone. In verse 22, we are informed poetically and yet prophetically, a thousand years before, around 1000 BC, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, as if it all now fits together. Dr. Ironside tells of the legend about the Temple of Solomon being built. Masons sent up from the quarry below a stone different in size and shape from all the rest they had sent up. <coughs> Looking at it, the builders said, there is no place for this stone. Must be some mistake. And so they rolled it down the edge of the cliff into the valley. As time went on, for the temple was seven years in building, they were ready for the chief cornerstone. But when they asked for it, they were told, we sent it up to you long ago. One of the workmen said, I recall it now. There was a stone altogether different from the rest. And we thought there was no place for it and rolled it down into the valley below. It was rejected. The men were sent down to the valley to find the stone. They succeeded in doing so, and when the stone was brought up, listen, it fitted perfectly into its place. The headstone of the corner. And shortly after the resurrection, there's Peter and John, and they're standing in front of the council, In chapter 4, verse 11 of the book of Acts, they state, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now you find the exclusionary aspect of entering into God's presence. It is through the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross. Poetically yet prophetically communicated a thousand years prior in Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You take a deep breath now. This is the Lord's doing. It's not our doing. Getting access to good. It's grace, not works. Don't miss the messianic implications of what comes next. It is marvelous in our eyes. Because the word marvelous, if you're using the English Standard Version, comes from the Hebrew root peel, which means the God who does the impossible. The very same word found in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where the name Isaiah gave to the Messiah, Wonderful Counselor. The word wonderful there, same, marvelous here. We're describing Messiah poetically, Yet prophetically, this is the Lord's doing. 
It is marvelous in our eyes. And the next time you and friends head off to Washington, D.C., and you get to the Capitol, you stop and you tell the story of at the end of the Civil War when the news of Appomattox came, the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, had displayed from the dome of the Capitol transparency in which were inscribed these words, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous or wonderful, wonderful counselor. You've got a story to tell. You've hit the pause button again on your vacation travels in our eyes. So you take a deep breath. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And you are rejoicing in the work of Christ described here a thousand years prior. And if now you find people on the outside are making this request, this threefold request in verse 19, and the one on the inside is communicating in response about the matter of salvation in 20 through 24, and you say that God has to be my salvation, I can't secure it. Then look what is stated in verse 25 and link it now to this day, this Palm Sunday. Because in verse 25 it reads, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Do you know what the Hebrew word for save us is? Hosanna. Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then powerfully, and the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them pick up on it in verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as John put it in chapter 12 of his writings, in verse 12, on the next day the great multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees, went out to meet him, and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this was predicted a thousand years prior, that's your sovereign God pulling all this together for you. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us, which is exactly what was used to describe Jesus who described himself as the light of the world. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar and now you hit the pause again. Because you're ready for the third consideration here. It's a Palm Sunday kind of teaching. Because thirdly, that on this Palm Sunday, you need to consider with me the thankfulness that God has desired. And now, those on the outside, realizing that the gates are beginning to open up, they cry out in unison, You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. And then, both inside and outside the gates, as the gates are swinging open wide, as this is being enacted, in unison now, in one accord, the same words you found in verse 1 are now found in verse 29, and we have come full circuit. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love, his hesed, endures forever.
the thankfulness God desires of you as you ponder the significance of this week, as you stand at the gate of a terminal and you stare at a ticket and you look at that gate and you consider the destination, be thinking seriously of what this psalm is all about. Let's stand together. Thank you, Father. There is a pilgrimage, as Bunyan notes. But all of us have to reach that point when we understand that this access is a restricted access. It is a gate that is meant to open, but it is also a gate that is meant to shut. Open to those declared righteous. Closed to those who try to achieve righteousness and fail to accept the fact that we are all sinners meant to be saved by grace. Pray now that each one here has examined his or her hearts see that the righteous one died in our place. We need to put faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation to be able to, in essence, come into your presence. Restricted access, when in reality, no access should ever even be assumed by us. It is all of grace, and we praise you. We thank you. We give it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.